Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Ephesians 3 and verse 7. Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me, by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Well, we're just looking at these couple of verses this evening. And Paul describes himself here as a minister whereof I was made a minister. The word here, don't be thinking of this word minister in this passage as meaning a cleric, or as they sometimes talk about, a gentleman of the cloth. I haven't a clue what cloth they're talking about. It's not a man with a cassock or a, or a clerical collar, a professional minister. The word here that Paul is using is simply the word diakonos, a servant, a deacon. Paul is a servant of the church, someone who serves the Lord's people, and he he serves them by preaching the good news. He says in verse uh, 7, or verse 6 rather, that they are partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister, a servant. So for Paul, ministry was serving others. He was, it was a form of service. And it was a form of service to which Paul had been specially chosen and equipped by God. In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 15, we read that it pleased God, Paul speaking, it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen. Paul was called by God's grace, and it was something that happened before he was even born. He was marked by God for this service. And he talks about that here as well. He says in verse 7, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of of the grace of God that was given to me. I want you to notice that he was made a minister. That wasn't something that he chose himself. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a funeral service in Newton Abbey, not so far from here, and one of the folks going to that funeral service spoke to me at the door on the way in, and he said, You must have had a very strange career teacher at your school. And I said, why? Well, he says, this is the third funeral I've been at and you have been taking it. And I said, well, there's a reason for that. I have been at many, many funerals um, and it wasn't suggested to me as a career choice. It was something that the Lord has called us to do. And for ministry, or for Paul rather, ministry wasn't a career choice. 
It wasn't something that his career teacher had sat down and said, you know, I really think you'd be good at preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Go for it and you'll make a fortune and you'll earn a good salary and you'll get a manse and you'll get a car and you'll get a pension. In fact, if you cast your mind back to that reading at the very beginning of the service, you'll see what ministry meant for Paul. It meant, as far as he was concerned, endless labor. It meant being beaten. It meant being cast in prison. It meant being beaten with a rod. It meant being it meant suffering. It meant being stoned. It meant being wrecked in a ship, spending a day and night in the sea. It meant being constantly journeying backwards and forwards. It meant being in peril over and over again and in different types of situation. It meant being at the mercy of the heathen and even false brethren. It meant being in the wilderness. It meant weariness and painfulness and fearfulness and hunger and thirst and fastings and cold and lack of comforts. And the worst thing of all, as far as being a minister for Paul is concerned, is the care for the churches. The care of souls trying to look after the church to make sure that the people are growing in Christ. It's not a great job, really. Somebody once said to me, would you advise your son to go into the ministry? Wouldn't it be great? If you're, if you're, when my son was young, wouldn't it be great if your son followed you into the ministry? And my answer was, I wouldn't advise anyone to go into the ministry. Ministers are not something, ministry is not something that you advise people to do. It's something that you're made to do. And you do it because you can't do anything else. Literally. In 2009, I resigned from the ministry. See, I'm not a real minister. In 2009, I resigned. And I set up my photographic studio in Dundonald. And we had a house in Malayle overlooking the sea. And you could sit in our living room and you could look straight across to the coast of Scotland. And I determined that I would join a local church and I would sit in the back pew. And my wife and I would have long walks by the beach and I would never enter a pulpit for the rest of my life. So awful had been my experiences of ministry up until that point. Not to the extent that Paul's talking about in Second Corinthians, but in the 1980s, the late 1980s, we were almost starved in a church by a man who, who told me that we had a great saying down in these parts. And the saying is, Lord bless our pastor. We'll keep him poor so you can keep him humble. And they did it. My daughter recently said to me, Dad, I can remember going to school with sandwiches that were so inedible that we threw them over the hedge and I borrowed food from my friends. So in 2009, I gave up and said, never again. Well, you see how that worked out. 
And you know why it worked out? Because being a minister is not a career choice. It is something that God ordains that you shall do. And sadly for me, that meant that you can't do anything else. You just can't. And so Paul's talking very personally here, as indeed I am. Whereof I was made a minister. It wasn't something he did himself. It was something that God did to him. God makes ministers. God chooses them. Servants. And he makes it impossible for them to do anything else. God did it to him. God chose Paul for this life path from before he was born. And he equipped him for it. And it was part of his plan. And strange as it might seem, it is part of God's grace that this should happen. Because Paul links the two together. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift by the, of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. So that leads me to the question, what does Paul mean when he talks about this link between serving the Lord and the grace of God? What is the grace of God? Well, we all know what grace is, don't we? It is God's unmerited favour by which he chooses to save us. It emphasises that God's favour with us cannot be deserved and it cannot be earned. When you go out to work tomorrow or whatever day you go back to work and you work your eight-hour day and you do your shift and you do your fair share of toil and labour and you get a fair day's pay at the end of the week, then that's your wages. You deserve every penny of it. When a person competes in a sporting contest and they receive a trophy because they have won the contest, that's an achievement. That's a prize. You deserve it. When a person receives appropriate recognition for long service in, in the military, perhaps, or in the police or whatever, and they get an achievement and they get an award, they deserve it. But you see, as a sinner, you're not capable of earning a wage. Not capable of winning the prize. You deserve nothing, no reward. And yet when you receive such a gift anyway, that's grace. Grace is God's riches at the expense of Christ. And Paul tells us here over and over again that grace is a gift. Look back at verse 7. He talks about how I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me. Verse 8, he says the same thing. Is this grace given? Grace is given. There's nothing of Paul and nothing of us in our salvation. It is given to us as a free gift. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7, Paul writes, What hast thou that thou didst not receive? The brethren often sing a hymn, Not have I gotten but what I received. Grace hath bestowed it since I have believed. Grace is a gift. Grace changes lives. Look at how Paul describes the efficacy of this grace of God which changed his life and brought him into service. He tells us here in verse 7 that this grace works. He said, it is given unto me by the effectual working of his power. 
There's a link there between how this grace of God saves you and the almighty power of God. He tells us that God's grace achieves God's purpose in our lives. The application of God's grace to sinners is a demonstration of the outworking of his power. And Paul links it to that in verse 9. If you read down to the bottom of verse 9, he says, To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. William Hendrickson here says he doesn't know why Nobody seems to know, no commentator seems to know why Paul suddenly dropped in these words who created all things by Jesus Christ. What's that got to do with what he's talking about? Well, I think that it's got to do with verse 8. It's really a personal opinion. Because, or verse 7 rather, because he talks here about the effectual working of God's power. God's almighty power that created the universe. God's almighty power that brought the worlds into being, that created us, that made this world out of nothing, is the same power that is applied to the saving of a sinner. God's grace works because of his power. It is so powerful that even the very worst of sinners can be transformed, as Paul was, and become useful of You become useful to God. Look at the way it's worded in verse 7. The authorised version here is very explicit about this. It talks about this power being effectual. The effectual working of his power. Some of the modern translations leave out the word effectual. Because the effectual working is literally one word in Greek. But it the word is energia, um, and it means energy. It's not just theoretical, abstract power. It would it would have been enough to translate this um, according to the working of his power. But the the sixteen eleven translators want to demonstrate that God's power not only works but it works effectually. That the energy that comes from God's power, is not abstract or theoretical. Let me try to illustrate this for you. When you go home, maybe not today, maybe tomorrow, get out your vacuum cleaner. Uh, My wife has one. And uh, I haven't found out how she uses it yet, but I have to get out of the room when she's using it because of the horrible noise it makes. Get it out and tell it to go ahead and Clean the floor and see what it does. It'll just sit there. But the power's there for it. There's a plug in the wall. And if you look at that plug, that plug is a powerful thing, isn't it? But unless you actually plug that infernal machine into the plug in the wall, into the socket, it's not going to do anything at all. The power's there, but the energy only occurs when the power is applied to the machine. I'm sure that works for lots of other machines apart from vacuum cleaners. Works for light bulbs and radios and your fancy cappuccino coffee machine. Power has to be applied. It has to become energy. Now, we could sit and talk about how great is the power of God all, our li- all, our, all night long. And we would be right to do that. 
We could talk about his power in creation. We could talk about his power uh, in sustaining the world, the whole universe held together by God's almighty power. But when it comes to grace, God's power is in action. It is effectual. It is working in a mighty way. It is applied power so that if God in his sovereign decree determines that a sinner will come to him in humble repentance and faith, that sinner will indeed be saved. We call that God's irresistible grace. Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 9, verse 19, when he says, For who hath resisted his will? So God's grace is a gift that changes lives, that chooses sinners, brings them from darkness into light, Brings him into service like Paul. It is because of the grace of God being a gift given to us sinners and made effectual by God's almighty power that Paul writes here in verse 8, who am less than the least of all saints because God's grace, when we think about it, humbles us very greatly. The fact that God has received unique and vital revelations from God didn't make him proud, didn't make him boastful, quite the opposite. It made him humble. We simply cannot understand why God in his grace would choose to save a sinner like him. Paul, the murderous torturer, the proud Pharisee, didn't deserve to be saved, let alone to be used in the spread of the gospel. That humility that Paul demonstrates here is part of our Christian growth. We pray for young Christians when they come to faith in Christ and we pray for them that they would grow in grace, don't we? Second Peter 3 and verse 18 Peter says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And that growth in grace never stops until we reach heaven. But do we ever explain what it means to grow in grace? And Paul demonstrates here what grace has done for him. It has made him humble. It has made him think that he is the least, the less than the least of the saints. He's away down at the bottom. He's humble. Something that never stops. And I think that growing in grace is this progression of humility in the way that we think of ourselves. We see it in Paul's life. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9, when he's talking to, at the very beginning of his ministry, he says, I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle. A little bit later on in life, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, right here, he's talking about being the least of all the saints. And then later on again in, in 1 Timothy 1 and 15, he's saying, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all accept, acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. 
And all of those statements coming chronologically as Paul's Christian life progresses, we see Paul growing in grace and becoming more and more humble, progressing from viewing himself as the least of the apostles to the least of all the Christians to the worst of all sinners. You see, I think that as we grow in grace, we see our own human condition more clearly. In the light of the examination of the Holy Spirit and the entrance of God's word, don't we? We recognize more and more the great depths of our sin. We discover more and more how far from God we are and we were. And we realize how great the sacrifice that Christ must have made to save a wretch like me. Paul even talks about that. He talks about how he is a sinful, wretched man. Oh, wretched man that I am. Why would he save me? It's all part of the mystery of godliness that we talked about last week. How great a work God's grace has done for us. The more we realize the depth of our sin, And the more we realize the greatness of our rescue, the more humble we will become before God and the more we will grow in God's grace. So grace is a gift. and Grace humbles us. And lastly, God in his grace rewards us. Paul says in verse 8, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The whole tone of this verse is that Paul considers it a wonderful privilege that he should be allowed to be the person who brings the message of salvation to the non-Jewish world. Here's the interesting thing. That description of Paul's ministry in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, that description of the hardships and the labors and the dangers of serving God in those days, he considers that to be a reward, to be part of God's grace toward him. It is by grace that he was allowed to preach among the Gentiles. Shouldn't be surprised about that. First Peter chapter 4 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Paul's difficult ministry was a reward, part of God's grace. But he talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ, and this is the second aspect of this reward of grace. 
Now, there's many preachers, as you know, in the charismatic movement these days who will tell you that because Jesus possesses unsearchable riches and because you're a joint heir with Christ, then you can't be rich too, can't you? You remember how that American pastor, Pastor Ed Young, boasted, God gave me a Ferrari because I am a Ferrari. And then later on he he said, well... He was using the reference metaphorically. I wonder, does he really have a Ferrari? Maybe he has. But by the standard of such preachers, Paul's ministry was a failure, wasn't it? He never had a Ferrari. He traveled by boat that sank. He never had a private jet. He was in prison. He never had a mansion. He was arrested and falsely tried. In fact, Paul indicates here that these riches of Christ are actually unknowable as far as we're concerned in this life. They are unsearchable. We can't even understand them. We can't measure them up with our puny human minds. They're not even for this life. What are these unsearchable riches? How can we partake of them? Martin Lloyd-Jones reminds us here, that it is Christ himself who is our wealth. When we talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ, we're not just talking about the fact that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. All of that is true. We're talking about the riches that come from knowing him. Nothing is more fulfilling Nothing is more satisfying. No riches, no wisdom. Just knowing Christ is all the wealth that we need. The greatest riches that anyone can have in this life is to know Jesus. And the greatest reward of all is that one day we shall meet him face to face. The psalmist in Psalm 17 says, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. So what have we learned? Paul has been made a minister. It wasn't his ideal career choice. It wasn't a denominational call or an ordination committee or a church selection committee. It was God's grace that saved him. And God's grace brought him into service. And that grace works because it comes from God's almighty power. It is power in action. It is energy. It always works. And the fact that it has worked in you and me will surely humble us as God continues his work of grace within us. And as he does, we will become more thankful and more humble and more dependent upon him. And even though we may face hardships and persecution in this life, as we serve the God who called us, we will receive the ultimate reward, the reward of service, and the reward in the new world to come when we finally meet the Saviour, the one who gave his all and suffered and died for sinners like us on the cross. 
Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.